This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Michael Lanspa, thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Emily Vale and colleagues entitled Use of Hydrocortisone, Ascorbic Acid, and Thiamine in Adults with Septic Shock. I'm joined today by lead author Dr. Emily Vale, who is an assistant clinical professor of anesthesiology at University of Texas Health San Antonio and current co-chair of the ATS Critical Care Assembly Early Career Professionals Working Group. Welcome, Emily, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Really pleased to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'd like to start by reminding our listeners of the rationale for this study. As I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, in 2017, there was a before and after study by Merrick and colleagues, which demonstrated lower mortality with patients who received hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, and thiamine, which is now known as HAT therapy. Uh, And this study generated a lot of discussion, and several groups started hastily devising clinical trials, which we'll discuss in a bit. But what was your motivation for doing this particular study? Thanks, Mike. So you're right. There was so much excitement and interest from both clinicians and lay press at the time of publication. And we'll talk more, I think, about reasons for some of that interest. Um, And I don't know if you've had similar experiences, but I've certainly had nurse and surgical colleagues suggest administration of this therapy in patients with refractory septic shock, which really, I think, speaks to the widespread interest in this therapy, even outside of critical care. For our study, my co-authors and I really focused on HAT therapy adoption and practice variation. And not are those only research interests among our group, but we had a really unique opportunity to answer those questions using a longitudinal data set that has both clinical and pharmacy data. We designed a third part of the study in which we focused on mortality, the associated with use to complement the ongoing trials work that you mentioned. Uh, observational studies have become a powerful tool in critical care because of their efficiency and generalizability. However, because the analysis required to draw those inferences are more complex and potentially limited by confounding other biases, we very intentionally focused on mortality only in our secondary analyses. Yeah, no, you raised a good point about uh, everyone being very enthusiastic about this. I can recall after this publication, we had a couple of house staff who really wanted to initiate this uh, therapy. What were you expecting? Did you think that HAT therapy was going to offer benefit? Good question. So my co-authors practice in really diverse hospitals across the U.S. and Canada. And so I think we all had different expectations regarding how much adoption we might see. And that's really informed by our own individual practice experiences. We all did expect to see some amount of variation because practice variation is something well demonstrated in critical care. In terms of the mortality effect, When we started planning the study, randomized trials were in progress, but none had published results. Um, And because of that, we hypothesized that we would not detect a difference in mortality between patients who did and did not receive the HAT therapy, limited to the group of patients who received it within two days of ICU admission. To be honest with you, we were unsure whether we would have enough patients who received HAT therapy in this study to even be able to do the effectiveness analyses with, with enough power to make a conclusion. I would say what we definitely did not expect was that we would find an increased association between mortality among the treated patients. We were surprised in addition to find that the point estimate for mortality that we found nearly exactly matched that of the vitamins trial, which was published somewhere between the initiation of our analysis and our publication. I think given the limitations that we discussed, uh, we can't definitely conclude that HAT therapy caused harm. 
You mentioned enthusiasm for other studies that were ongoing, including the vitamins trial. And for the listeners here, that was an unblinded trial of about 200 patients with septic shock. And that found an association with the treatment regimen and improved organ failure score, but no mortality or secondary outcome that was relevant for uh, HAT. There was also another trial that had come out last year, the Citrus ALI, which was testing that cocktail and showing that it didn't improve organ failure scores in patients with sepsis and ARDS. Uh, organ failure scores were its primary outcome, but it did demonstrate a mortality benefit, although the authors expressed skepticism as the study wasn't originally powered for mortality. There's also the Victus study, which is, uh, and other studies that are currently underway. Putting that together with your finding of mortality, how do you think we should interpret the current state of HAT therapy? Uh, I, w- I would add to, to the list of trials that the multicenter ACTS trial was just published a few weeks ago. And unlike that vitamins trial, they did use a blinded design. They used a true placebo, not just hydrocortisone. But overall, I would say that those trials were similar in terms of the, the time to enrollment, time to initiation of therapy, and a similar number of patients. And like vitamins, ACTS did not show improvements in SOFA score or mortality. In the interim, there's also been several observational studies conducted, a few that actually attempted to directly replicate the Merrick study. And like the, the trials, the observational studies have really not consistently demonstrated a mortality benefit in patients who receive the therapy. So overall, what is clear is that we have not seen consistent improvements in markers of organ damage, of severity of illness or mortality over a growing number of observational studies and trials. Um, suggesting that our initial enthusiasm for for HAT therapy as a cure for sepsis and septic shock may have been premature. Uh, I hope that the other trials in progress might be able to answer some questions about whether HAT therapy might be effective earlier in the course of sepsis and septic shock, or to identify specific clinical phenotypes or characteristics for the patients most likely to benefit from HAT therapy. That's well said. I think it's very important for us to temper our initial enthusiasm for a promising initial study. But let's talk about your study here. Very impressive. I know you said you were worried about whether or not you would have enough patients, and we have a study here of over 300,000 patients with shock. How did you determine the impact of Merrick's publication on physician practice? Uh, Thank you. So our study design did not directly ask clinicians about the effect of the Merrick study on their practice. Instead, we drew a temporal association between study publication and changing rates of HIT therapy administration in the cohort. We couldn't demonstrate why patients were receiving more HIT over time, but in this case, because the temporal association between publication and use was very clear, we don't have a plausible alternative explanation for this observed increase. We concluded that the publication of the Merrick study played at least a significant, if not the primary role. Right, and and how exactly did you incorporate time into that analysis? So we did so in a few ways. In the simplest analyses, we simply compared HAT use and outcomes in patients who were admitted to a study ICU before and after the publication date. Then to determine whether and how much use changed over time, we performed segmented logistic regression analysis in which the primary exposure was quarter year of hospital discharge. And then we classified those quarters into quarters before and after the study publication date. So with the segmented regression analysis, we could examine both immediate change in the month following study publication and then further increases in adoption over time. 
when we identified factors associated with the receipt of HAT therapy, we used a similar structure of segmented regression with the same time variables, also adjusting for patient and hospital characteristics and individual hospital admission to identify adjusted associations between adoption and time. So I, I would suspect that you'd have sicker patients that are more likely to receive this therapy. How did you account for the effect of disease severity on the decision to administer HAT? You're correct that this is a limitation of the comparative effectiveness or mortality part of the study, and it's suggested by a lot of our findings. For example, patients who received HAT therapy spent more days in the ICU than other patients, whether or not they survived to hospital discharge. Unfortunately, the study data set does not include a specific severity of illness variable that's necessary to fully address the problem, and that increases the possibility that residual confounding contributed to our observed results. In the multivariable model and in the propensity scores, we attempted to adjust for severity of illness by looking at acute organ dysfunction codes, as well as charge codes for therapies like mechanical ventilation and renal replacement therapy that are known to be associated with higher severity of illness. In addition, because there are differences in case mix and clinical practice between individual hospitals, we use clustering by hospital of admission to try to account for some of those potential unmeasured confounders. What we really can't measure from the data, though, is why clinicians or hospitals decided to administer the therapy to a given patient. And you're right, it is likely that in some instances, they chose to administer HAT therapy because of clinical discompensation or other factors that are just simply not measured. Yeah, that is the burden of a lot of retrospective observation. I, I did like how you investigated the effect of the hospital site on behavioral changes, and you found that hospitals with high volumes of septic patients were more likely to adopt HAT therapy. Why do you speculate that is? So overall, more than 40% of the study hospitals administered HAT therapy to at least one cohort patient, but we did see major differences in those proportions. For example, in the highest use hospital in the cohort, more than 40% of patients with septic shock admitted to an ICU received the therapy. So why we see such high use associated with high use hospitals? This is speculation, but I can imagine two possibilities. Uh, first, clinicians who are working in hospitals that treat a large volume of patients with septic shock may develop particular interest or expertise in the treatment of these patients that leads them to more quickly adopt these therapies. And second, it may actually just be a question of availability. So the first time that a clinician orders high dose vitamin C and these therapies in combination, there might be some practical barriers to administration. Either it takes some time for the pharmacy to prepare it, maybe it's non-formulary, maybe there's some unfamiliarity with the nurses at the bedside. But if ordered frequently enough, the pharmacies and the nursing staff may adapt to their dispensation delivery processes to make it actually much easier to deliver and creating sort of a feed-forward effect. I will say that in this case, because we don't have data about changes in hospital processes over the course of the study that might facilitate or impede the adoption of the therapy, we couldn't determine whether the HAT use in each hospital was attributable to individual providers or one or more ICUs. That's very impressive that you tried to account for the effect of local culture on behavior. Besides looking at behavior, as you mentioned earlier, you also looked at whether or not HAT therapy worked, whether it improved mortality. And as we were talking earlier, these questions are often plagued by confounding by indication. But I thought it was really interesting how your group tried to handle that possibility of unmeasured bias. Can you explain a little bit how your group uh, assessed that? 
Sure. Yeah. So you're right that the analyses like these have a lot of potential biases and problems that require careful avoidance. And I'll say even before the, the bias analyses that you're asking about, we tried to mitigate another related problem, which is a mortal time bias. So we limited the mortality analysis to a smaller group of patients who presented to the hospital and were admitted to an ICU with septic shock and who received the HAT therapy within two days of hospitalization, then did the other um, controls for severity of illness like we talked about. Where the quantitative bias analysis comes in is after we've done all the previous analyses, helps us to determine how brittle or how robust our findings are to presence of additional unmeasured confounders. In our study, if the strategies that we used to address these confounders was not completely effective, the bias analysis would help indicate that our results are, are quite sensitive to confounding. For example, if a confounder was present but unmeasured in the data set and that confounder was strongly associated with an increase in hospital mortality, a difference in prevalence of that factor between treated and untreated patients of as little as 10% would be enough to nullify our results. What this suggests to us is that residual confounding may explain the increased mortality that we observed. That's a great idea, and I wish more studies would report this. I think this is uh, something that we should be doing in a lot more observational studies for the assessment of bias. Now, you had mentioned earlier about one of the potential criticisms of some of these interventional trials is that the study drug wasn't administered until fairly late in the course of sepsis. While if we were to just implement this clinically, a clinician probably would administer HAT uh, very rapidly. And since your study is an observation of clinician behavior that avoids that complaint, you essentially had on your hands a natural experiment with this study. And I was wondering if you thought there were any other advantages that observational studies like yours have over RCTs. You're right. There's a growing recognition in critical care. There's a great session at ATS last year really about how randomized trials, which we consider the end-all, be-all, uh, gold standard for clinical research, isn't possible in all situations and has its own flaws and limitations. And observational research has a lot of advantages. First and foremost, it's much more generalizable to real world practice and populations. So my colleagues and others have previously demonstrated that a majority of patients that we actually find in our ICUs are not eligible for seminal trials in critical care medicine. And observational studies allow us to expand the pool of evidence to include all patients or more patients. Second, these are very low cost and often highly efficient studies. So between the time of Merrick study publication and when we finished our data analysis, we were able to identify more than 3,500 patients who received HAT therapy, including 1,500 that we were able to include in the comparative effectiveness analyses. That's about 15 times more patients than have ever been randomized to HAT therapy in any RCT to date. And it doesn't apply so much in this scenario, but also observational studies are necessary when we can't randomize people because of ethics or because of other practical concerns. Overall, I think the natural experiments are best when there's sufficient number of patients who receive the treatment of interest. And that can happen either because there's clinical equipoise or because we have a group of early adopters who are interested in delivering these therapies before we have a full body of evidence. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that study that you and Ryan Ivey had done. For those uh, listeners, it's in critical care medicine in, let's see here, I'm looking this up, 2000, 2017, February 2017 in critical care medicine. Gosh, yeah, I was a fellow. I can't, <laughs> thank you for the shout out. Hi, Ryan. It's a, yeah, it's a great study and it shows how poor our uh, ability is to generalize a lot of RCTs. I'm so glad we had an opportunity to mention that study because it's excellent. You know, I, I just can't help but wonder, 
one of the challenges that we have is trying to get clinicians to adhere to practices that are supported by high quality evidence. For example, the ARMA trial, which demonstrated six cc's per kilogram tidal volumes for ARDS was of substantial benefit. And we can't get people to do that, even at the study hospitals that were part of ARDSnet. And yet your study demonstrates that we're super eager to rush out and administer all sorts of unproven therapies. And we've seen a lot of that with this COVID pandemic, with a lot of intelligent physicians and scientists promoting what's essentially witchcraft. And I'd like to think that academic institutions would be the most skeptical of unproven therapies, but your study suggests that high volume centers, which I would presume a lot of academic centers uh, would be, are more likely to embrace this therapy. I have a lot of academic colleagues who uh, have advised unproven practices for COVID as well. Why do you think we see this behavior even among our most educated practitioners? You're right. It's a, a complex question. Um, I, I want to start by pointing out that, and we expect, I would say I expected that we would see increased HHE use in hospitals designated as teaching hospitals by Premier. Um, we didn't actually find that in the data, but we did see a volume effect for sure. I th in, in terms of the reasons why, I think overall physicians are problem solvers and we get a lot of personal satisfaction, a lot of reinforcement when the interventions that we make are associated with a positive outcome. And so, yes, I too have observed wide interpersonal variation among colleagues and mentors with both uh, tolerance for risk and expectation of benefit for a given therapy. And this might be more prevalent in medicine than in other scientific disciplines because the consequences of our actions have demonstrable effects on humans, which leads to really strong emotional impact and can actually have lifelong effects on our own practices. I would also add that it's much more psychologically difficult to withhold a therapy than to administer it, whether or not it's effective. We also know that not all clinicians have training in observational research methods or the practice of evidence-based medicine, so they may be more easily convinced to adopt a therapy simply because it's published in a medical journal or reinforced by, by publication in the lay press. In our discussion, we posited that one reason we may have seen such a rapid adoption in the therapy is because it's so easy to administer. So for those really complex, prolonged therapies, they're much less likely to be delivered effectively. Ordering a medication is about as simple of it as an intervention as we can make, even simpler than stopping an intervention in some cases. As you point out, a lot of the therapies that have proven efficacy and effectiveness are very difficult to administer properly. So not only do they require significant human resources, buy-in from a larger team like nurses and respiratory therapists, they have to be, there's a constant cycle of monitoring feedback and adjustment that has to happen before it can be done correctly. Because of the risk of interruption and improper delivery, the resources required to deliver those things is certainly higher than, than simply ordering a medication. You raised some excellent points. I just recall how my medical thinking was prior to me doing research, and I thought, well, if it was published in New England Journal or something like that, it must, must be good. Smart people have reviewed this. And, you know, I also think that you raise a really important point about the dangers of premature science when there's an immediate potential application to it, like in, in medicine. I don't have a large Hadron Collider in my backyard, so if I read a preprint uh, that I could say, oh, I'm just going to go apply that. But I do have a patient that I could potentially apply something that has not been appropriately vetted. And so I think you raise an excellent point there about the potential dangers of prematurely embracing uh, some of these therapies and why physicians, perhaps out of other scientific disciplines, are more likely to embrace that sort of behavior. I think you're totally right. I, you know, one of my close childhood friends is a biomedical engineer, and she, after postdoc, moved to work in clinical trials. And she remarked to me that she is fascinated by the clinicians who have enrolled a patient. They think that their patient has received the study drug or therapy, and they're no longer willing to enroll any other patients. An N of one is sufficient for many of us to change our practice. 
permanently or semi-permanently in a way that engineers are just flabbergasted by. There's an, uh, an anecdote that I'd read in the uh, lay press about a physician who received hydroxychloroquine as part of a study after demonstrating that there was no benefit, is convinced that the hydroxychloroquine cured him. So let's imagine we get another study like the Merrick HAP study, a, a study that promises a huge mortality benefit with a cheap, easy, available therapy, minimal expected adverse effects, but methodologically flawed, not yet ready for prime time. How should clinicians deal with this challenge of waiting for better quality evidence versus allowing people to die when you have a potentially life-saving therapy? Good question. You know, you're right that it's certainly easier to justify if we expect very few adverse effects, but there are both short and long-term consequences of those decisions. I would say first that we have many historical examples in which our initial rush to implement a therapy for critically ill patient has ultimately been found not just to be ineffective, but actually to be harmful. In the case of HAT therapy, authors expected to see problems with kidney injury and renal failure, but other consequences of therapy like interference with the assays for lactatemia and hyperglycemia were really only recognized after the Merrick study was published. That safety data or evidence of harm takes a lot of time to accumulate and can actually be very difficult to measure in a secondary data set. Third, treatments, even those with really good efficacy, tend to be overapplied without supporting evidence. So since publication of the Merrick study, use of HAT therapy has been described in case reports and case series of other life-threatening inflammatory conditions, including Stevens-Johnson syndrome and vasoplegia after cardiopulmonary bypass. When therapies are found to be ineffective, the adoption is actually very difficult, very slow, um, and we might be potentially exposing many more patients to an ineffective or potentially harmful therapy even after we know that it's no longer safe. Um, I think I should add here, though, that even though I don't consider myself an early adopter, I recognize that there are potential costs, both personal and costs of withholding promising therapies from these patients. And we need to recognize, again, that early adopters have a really important role in generating the kind of data that we use for studies like ours. I would also say that even though I understand this evidence and have followed this story pretty closely, I have administered HAT therapy in a few instances that I don't think were truly evidence-based. For example, administering HAT therapy to a dying patient when a family or, or surgical colleague asks. In that case, the building collaboration and offering hope to a family really outweighed the risk of harm. And those trade-offs, which influence our practice every day, are incredibly difficult to detect and measure. You raise an excellent point about a layperson requesting a therapy. Physicians struggle to interpret this data. And a person goes on to the lay press to promote an unproven therapy. It's very hard for even an educated clinician to know how to interpret that, let alone the lay public. And, you know, we saw some of that with the enthusiasm for HAT, as well as a lot of these unproven therapies with COVID. So I think your comment here raises a, an important emphasis on physicians trying to self-police with going uh, straight to the PR department with every promising study. Right, right. We're in the business of offering hope and can be really encouraged by these results. But you're right, it's the unintended downstream effects are myriad. Well, this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Emily Vale, for a great discussion on physician decision-making in the setting of incomplete evidence. I hope that the listeners uh, have found some perspective not only on vitamin C, but also on the efficacy of early adoption of unproven therapies. Thank you, Dr. Vale. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, likewise. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.